In today's quest, meet a young Visigothic warlord that takes advantage of a vulnerable Rome and does something that sends shockwaves across the empire. This is the quest for power. Welcome to the Quest for Power podcast, where we are ranking and reviewing all of the European monarchs from the early Middle Ages to World War I. I am Scott. I am Michael. And thank you all for joining us today. So this is episode two, but kind of not really. This is our first real episode, as I kind of dubbed it episode zero last time. So, uh, Michael, who are we going to be reviewing today? Today, we have the special treat of Alaric, first of his name, King of the Visigoths. You might have heard him before. Some of our listeners probably have. He is very infamous for a big event that we will get to on later on in the podcast. People much more learned than me, naturally. <laughs> before we get started, as always, we got to go through the sources to prove that I kind of know what I'm talking about. Uh, today, we will use Jordanes again, who we met last episode. And we got a new source today called Orosius. It is O R O, like Oro S I U S. That's as much as I can pronounce it. Orosius. Right oh, no. Oh, yeah. Orosius. Orosius. Yeah. There we go. All right. It's possible that he was born on the Iberian Peninsula in the Roman province of Galicia, which is like modern day Spain and Portugal. He was known as a Roman priest, historian, and theologian. His most important works is his seven books of history against the pagans. So you could tell his viewpoint <laughs> of how it's skewed in history. A real gem and absolutely not biased. So zero it is actually a very important work it like gave us a lot of information about this period it's a historical narration focusing on the pagan peoples from the earliest time to uh from from the earliest time when he was alive it was written for the purpose of defending christians from the criticism criticisms of pagan Romans who said like that the empire troubles remember the empire we went last episode is just falling apart because they turned their backs on the pantheons and he's like no 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 this is not the, the Christians fault this is actually why another one that we have is Zosimus who uh is the opposite of Orosis he lived in Constantinople Constantinople around the 490s to the 510s. So that's like a hundred years after Alaric's reign for the most part. So, you know, he's getting a lot of his information secondhand. Yeah, that's understandable. It's a lot of, if there's a hectic time, most people aren't going to take time to write things down. Plus, I appreciate with um, especially everything being in a fallout of Rome, uh, still therefore a very Roman-centric uh, story. It means that I still get to make the the good old Istanbul, not Constantinople reference. So I think there's a real, so that's, that's my, that's my positive win here. That is a fantastic song. Uh, he is 
he um is the complete opposite of Orosis. He, like I was saying, he's the staunch pagan and he like railed against Constantine's conversion of the empire to Christianity. He thought this is what is doomed the empire. It is all Constantine's fault because he turned away from the Pantheon. His purpose of writing was to document the decline of the empire from a pagan's point of view. So now we get a Christian's and we get a pagan's point of view. So hopefully between there, we get the truth somewhere. However, unfortunately, a lot of his work was quote unquote lost. I'm going to go out on a limb to say it was most likely suppressed from later Christians, considering they dominated the next viewpoints for the next thousand years. Who would ever suppress books? That never happens, right? No, we, yeah, I, I, I say it over time. You are never on the right side of history when you are book burning. It drives me nuts, especially as a historical nerd. There are so many documents I wish that we could have back. Well, on the bright side, book burning. It's a great magic card. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing magic in already. Zosimus uh, wrote harshly against the Christian emperors, so he really came down hard on these guys, which caused his credibility to be mercilessly attacked by future Christian writers for, for obvious reasons. Christians already in the very beginning were really getting good at twisting works outright or destroying anything that did not fit their truth, so to speak. Finally, we'll use Gibbon, who is a secondhand source who pretty much wrote the Bible of the fall of the Roman emperor, Empire. If you ever want to know anything about Rome when it's in its decline, you go read Gibbon. He wrote a ton of volumes on this stuff. It is just packed full of information. And I can't even begin to tell you like how crazy it is, the amount of stuff he wrote. And uh, he's very clearly a Victorian, and his bias shows that when he's writing. It's kind of an interesting... I've never thought about the Victorian bias apart from, well, I guess thinking about the very uh, modern interpretation of Victorian times. So a very like proprietary and also dirty and also Eurocentric. So we're having a very different vibe than I think than probably what he's getting. But I think it's also interesting that the that the Victorian viewpoint, or that this person is a Victorian uh, from the Victorian time and is able to apparently write so much that we use when there's quite the time gap. Correct. It's secondhand history. So he is taking off of documents maybe that were destroyed in you know future wars or whatever. Uh, yeah, it, Victorians really took history on and created the history that like we know a lot of today. They're the ones who really figured out that, okay, we should actually document this stuff down and create narratives of what happened. So for the main quest, we picked a doozy of a first king to cover. His story takes place in the center of some serious drama that was playing across the Roman Empire. I mean, this stuff is the blueprint for Game of Thrones. I, there are some things that I, when I'm watching Game of Thrones, I'm like, oh, George R. R. Martin stole that directly from history. Which I know you watch so much of. 
Oh yeah. You you know me. I know the game and the thrones part. And <laughs> I hear I the most Game of Thrones exposure that I've had, I would say, is uh from South Park. So those series of episodes are fantastic. And I think is absolutely an accurate depiction of George R. R. Martin to a T. And it's great because I'm pretty sure you haven't watched the South Park episode of Game of Thrones, but boy, does it, uh, <laughs> it paints a picture of him. They, uh, their parody of the, I guess the theme song, I, I know it plays like as their, like in between scenes and things like that. Just like da 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 da. Oh, that's like the like, very beginning. That's that's yeah. like all. It's like one of the longest intros in history. That like not in history. One of the longest intros like in TV. But it's so. I don't know. It's people. Some of the people's favorite parts of the the Game of Thrones, which says well, a lot. South Park has some words about that, and uh, one word exactly: wiener. <laughs> they make fun of george rr R. martin and the fact that apparently is, is that you know just because there's a lot of like there there's a lot of sex scenes in the show and they're just apparently like lust for showing uh people people's privates all over the screen they really uh they really poked fun at him for it that and also you know you have to think that this episode aired in Gosh, I don't even remember what year, but much, you know, it, it was in when the earlier seasons and stuff were airing, if I recall. It's probably around 2013 or so, I'd say. So a while back now, you know, almost 10 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the biggest, their biggest criticism was that the dragons are never coming. <laughs> and so he would keep insisting that the dragons were coming and there's someone who's dying pretty much because he's got diabetes and his blood sugar is dropping and he's like oh the pizzas are coming and so that's what i think about whenever i think of game of thrones half the time i have not heard of any of that what i do know is yes they did show a lot of those um sh interesting scenes shall we say in the begin very beginning and then they sort of like actually got into the plot, like towards the end of season one and season two and three. Those are the good. Those are like the highlights of Game of Thrones. That's when it's at its peak. Uh, okay. So anyway, back to the Roman Empire. When you think of Rome, what do you think of? Roads, because all roads lead to Rome. That is that <laughs> is true. And like when Hadrian's Wall, too. So that always. Yeah. Hadrian's Wall. Yeah, I always keep thinking sometimes it's Adrian's Wall, but I'm pretty sure it's Hadrian's Wall. I, I'm pretty confident his name is Hadrian. I'm sure in other languages it could be called Adrian because in Spanish um, the H's are oh. usually silent, but I would call it Hadrian's Wall. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I, what it's been referred to as, but I'm also just very forgetful and the names are, you know, very similar. But I think about that for some reason. I think it's just because it shows just how how far they got, how far they reached when you can, because wasn't Hadrian's Wall all the way up in uh, Britain? Yeah, it was all the way up into just about Scotland is where they See? reached into. 
it's that's that's kind of insane when you think about it like yeah yeah english channel is a fantastic natural fortress so just really just shows how far you come the last time the english channel has been invaded successfully was by the normans all the way back and i think the 11th century i'm gonna get crucified for not knowing that one i forgot exactly the exact date but it's been a long time anyway the roman empire when we enter the story is not what it used to be in the glory days of augustus vespasian trajan these are names you probably don't know but i'm sure some of our listeners know in fact the roman empire is not this one big like unified unit it is split up into two halves both being east and west and most of the power is no longer in the west in rome it is now in constantinople which you say istanbul istanbul all right it's a bit of a mess to explain the whole world situation when alara comes into it but i'll give it a shot you might want to take notes there's gonna be a lot of names thrown around Theodosius, who will be in the beginning of our story, is the last emperor to rule both halves. He holds like most of the power in the east and the west, and he holds holds most of the power um, in the east. And in the west sits the puppet emperor Valentinian II. He is controlled by a man named Arbogast. Arbogast cannot be an emperor since he was a barbarian by birth, and Romans, that would be un- Thinkable to have a filthy barbarian sit atop the imperial throne. It's good old prejudice at its finest. Oh, yes. It, it's good to notice that it just never goes away. <laughs> never truly out of style. No. Uh, anyway, Valentinian and his counselor, Arbogast, began having some issues. Valentinian mistakenly believed that he had any power, and he was trying to exert some of that power. According to Zosimus, Valentinian publicly dismissed Arbogast. But then, of course, he, he like did this in full front of everyone to like show his power it was like his power move to finally throw off the yoke however according to zosimus arbogast promptly flew into a rage and stated you have neither given me my command nor will you be able to take it away and then threw the order on the floor mic drop and stormed out boom served and uh, well, four months later, unfortunately, Valentinian II was found hanging in his sleeping quarters, and Arbogast claimed this as suicide. Now, contemporary historians, also Zosimus and Orosus, believe that he was murdered by Arbogast. However, much later historians argue that he committed suicide after coming to full terms with his situation. He has been publicly humiliated, you know, and has zero power. What do you think happened? He's, say, he's absolutely murdered. Not a doubt in my mind. Because I'm powerless, and here I am. (laughs) I know the, the scope is a lot different. So, but I think that he was probably pressured into committing suicide. 
like you will receive a fate worse than death if you keep up this charade i can see that yeah uh, but if, if that is the case arbogast made a huge blunder theodosius received a letter letting him know that valentinian was dead and arbogast of course in the letter said it was suicide theodosius was stunned and enraged and he wasn't sure what to believe his wife gala who also happened to be the sister of valentinian ii probably believed let probably let her feelings know that she think arbogast was not to be trusted i agree go go stick up go stick up for your brother well dead brother but go stick up for your brother lady yeah honor honor him theodosius instead nothing and he just waited to see what arbogast next move would be this is kind of his like trademark thing he just doesn't do anything when someone tries to take an action it's almost like let me just see what you're going to do. It's pretty smart, actually. Let the opponent show their hand first, and then you can uh, react accordingly. Yeah, I, it definitely can be a preferred tactic. I always forget that things kind of move a bit more slowly, I'd say, back then as to nowadays, where a lot of the times it's where if you were to try that similar stunt nowadays, you may find yourself too late, too little, too late. So it really is kind of a, a change in perspective. Yeah. I mean, think of how long it took for information to get around back then. It's it, it, it really, you kind of had to do that almost. Yeah. Had to travel, take your note and travel by swallows carrying coconuts and uh, shoot, you know, that must've taken a few days if, depending if it's an <laughs> African or a European swallow. That is very true. Since Constantinople sent no instructions on how to proceed, Arbogast thought he probably should set up a new puppet emperor. And he did this in a man named Eugenius. And uh, so the West sent emissaries to Constantinople to explain that they wanted cooperation and peace. Like, look, this is the new emperor. We want no trouble. We we did nothing wrong. Valentinian hung himself. We're just trying to move on. What was Theodosius's response? Silence. He's like that friend that, you know, just would just like text you would text him things and they go dot dot dot. And you and then just leaves you waiting for a reply. Leave him on read or read. <laughs> Yeah, leave it on red. Like he he got the message, did nothing with it. He didn't even respond to the emissaries. Cool. It's cool. Eventually in 393, he made his move. He elevated his younger son Honorius to the Emperor of the West and declared Arbogast and Eugenius usurpers. The two sides prepared for war. Theodosius left a man over in Constantinople, Istanbul, named Rufinius. Ru yeah, Rufinius. In charge of his son, Arcadius, in the east. So you have Honorus, who is now the emperor of the west, and you have Arcadius, 
his other son, who is emperor of the East. And Theodosius still is like the main emperor, but they're like the two, like, I don't know, sub emperors, vice emperors, mm -hmm. if you would call yeah. it. It's kind of, yeah, some of this is kind of coming back from like high school, things like that. So, yeah, yeah. The, Theodosius holds all the power, to be honest. So, well, well, well he leaves his son, um, you know, in, in the good hands of Rufinius and then goes to deal with the usurper. This is where we finally get Alaric in our story. So when he first enters the record, he is leading a war band of Goths on the side of Theodosius. Do you remember the agreement last episode where, like, the barbarians had to, like, give soldiers as part of the peace agreement with the Romans? Yeah, but they got, like, land, and they, what was it? They don't have to totally submit to Rome. Yeah, yeah, correct. So this is, so this is now, we're seeing some of the effects of that. So the two forces prepare to face off. So if we're to be adding, if we were betting odds like sports, Arbogast and Eugenius are heavily favored to win. Arbogast has better forces. He is a, an excellent general. Theodosius is okay, but he is no Arbogast in terms of the battlefield. Theodosius, in all of his wisdom, decides to break through his line by ordering an all-out assault. It's an extremely risky move, but if he can break through their lines, he won, wins the battle. And he decided that Alaric and his Gothic troops should take the suicidal charge against Arbogast. Daring plans always work out in stories, right? Well, most of them anyways. The most of the ones we hear about. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately in real life, they don't. The Goths were absolutely massacred. At the end of the first day, 10,000 Goths lay dead on the battlefield. This is not how you want to start a battle. However, through a combination of plotting and then massive winds kicking up on the battlefield, like so massive of winds that like Arbogast's arrows were useless. Like you would fire an arrow and it would just do nothing. Theodosius's men ended up getting the upper hand and slaughtered all of Arbogast's forces. Wow. Talk about, you know, some timely weather. <laughs> he got extremely lucky. Now, rumors began to spread around the Gothic camp that Theodosius was trying to kill as many Goths as possible. Because remember, they're still kind of their enemy, even though that they have this little agreement. They're still not friends, for the most part. They're, they're, they're basically like the, I would have to say how Russia and the United States was in, you know, World War II. They're not friends, but they're allies. Yeah, they're there purely out of circumstance. Correct. So the rumor was pretty believable, considering earlier in his reign, Theodosius orchestrated a massacre of the Goths. So there's a little history there. So here's a little sidebar regarding this massacre, because it's kind of a horrific story and actually pretty smart by him, if I'm going to be honest, like in a, in a very... Um, what's Who's that guy from... Machiavellian way. There it is. Okay, on the Machiavellian. Yeah. In a very Machiavellian way. It actually is a pretty smart idea. So the Goths were trying to come over the Danube, like we were talking about last episode, because the Huns were once again coming, and they had an earlier deal with the Emperor Valens, like we talked about. 
Well, Theodosius said we should help these Goths. After all, they, they we need their soldiers, you know, to bolster the Roman army. We are we took massive losses after Valentinian was killed. So the Goths were told um, to have the able fighting men to first board the boats, and then they will ferry them across the river. It's kind of like the opposite of the Titanic: <laughs> the men, the men first before the women and children. And they said. After the men are across, they will come and get the women and children. Well, the men never, never made it across. Once they were all boarded and they were in the middle of the Danube, which is is a massive, massive river, all of their boats were surrounded and sunk, killing thousands of warriors. Wow. That's pretty savage. Barbaric, if you will. It is pretty barbaric. True to their word, though, the Romans, you know, never lie. They came over to the women and children and immediately enslaved them and sold them off across the empire. This act, this enslavement of so many people crashed the slavery market. (laughs) What a crazy thing to think about that is absolutely insane that like it slaves were so cheap and like it just everyone's like finances so to speak and slaves just went down that is just in our 21st century mind that is just horrific (laughs) to think about yeah i think yeah well i'd say yeah the there there is maybe a little bit of justice that people's you know, potential investment prospects went down in slavery. So, you know, yeah. it's good that it's good that these people making money off slavery kind of maybe lost some cash. But also, yeah, it's pretty unthinkable nowadays thinking about uh, having that many slaves just in the in the system got by the government, no less. Yeah, so Theodosius committed this horrific act because he had to just eliminate the threat of the Goths. They were becoming an issue again, and he had other threats out in the East that we really don't have time to get into. But that's the reason he just went, "All right, we're gonna, we're just gonna destroy the Goths as much as power, much as possible, you know, and then we'll go deal with this other threat." Because you know the empire was like whack-a-mole; there were threats popping up all over the place. So on top of all of that, that history and then the, the you know, the, the act of throwing 10,000 10, barbarians to their deaths for no reason really at all. It was a really dumb move. Uh, this, on top of all that, he discarded Alaric and his men. They gave him like no recognition for their sacrifice. They lost a ton of people at that battle. Apparently, he and the Romans didn't even really acknowledge the Goths. They just kind of treated them as second-class citizens. Like, they basically did nothing after this battle. As you can imagine, this began to really tick off the Goths. Alaric and his men resigned from the Roman army, swearing that they would take it to the Romans. Yeah, I I agree. I think that, you know, it'll be it would be very lousy for them to stick with the people who cost them 10,000 lives. Plus for the sake of our podcast, it's much cooler. 
Yes, the Romans are going to really regret this. So, at age 25, Alaric is raised on his shield and then proclaimed king of the Goths, making him officially Alaric, first of his name, king of the Goths. First of his name, huh? That's what yeah. they call it? They can't just say Alaric say Al- first? You could say Alaric the first, but first of his name, it's just a way cooler title. I guess um, so. I mean... <laughs> Do we know? Is there are there other Alarics? Yes, there are other Alarics. And okay. uh, uh, reading ahead, they're not great. <laughs> Just put it that way. Alaric is oh. like the the ultimate badass in in uh, in 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 the Visigothic reign. Because I'm the first of my name. Oh yes, 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 you are. Yeah, like. So we'll say Scott, first of his name. That's right. Where's where's my shield, darn it? <laughs> I love that they raise a king by putting him on his shield and raising him. It's like being a crowd surfer at a metal concert. That's right. I'll have to... It makes me think of the uh, completely different, but the the times where I've seen, like, there was, like, these guys in, like, banana suits and they crowd surfed all the way up to this stage. So... I think that was, I say, that's what you just made me think of. But you also made me think of um, like that Spartan kind of saying where it's, you know, come come home with your shield or on it. In a oh, yes. Yeah. Completely different context, but yeah. uh, different culture too, different time frame. Good old callback to 300. That's right. So- yeah, I think about that. I don't think I've ever actually watched that whole movie. Because it, it was not good, but I do remember that. So I did learn something that, you know, I think you're supposed to kick people in pits too. So yeah, no, I read an entire like I forgot what the book was called. I think it was like the Gates of Hell, and it was like the entire narration of it, like as if you were there, and it was really, really well done. So that's how I know all about the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, it, I, I, I'm pretty confident it's the gates of hell. I would highly recommend anyone to check it out. That is some serious, that is a really, really good book and goes through a lot of emotions and, and like life and death and especially how the Spartans thought about it. Yeah. Well, it's kind of crazy how much we romanticize that too, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's a really weird battle that that was the one immortalized out of all of the battles. Well, I'm sure it very much helps fit a lot of our modern mindset and romanticizing struggles that are insurmountably difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to agree. It's pretty iconic to be like, you know, you can round it. You can give a nice round number to be like, yep, 300 people held (laughs) off all these Persians yeah, ancient sources and even medieval sources, the numbers are always skewed. You have to take them with a grain of salt. It basically gives you a magnitude of the battles uh, oh, for sure. that. I mean, who's actually counting the exact numbers? Well, nowadays we are, I'd say, and probably even back then, because you have, you know, I'm sure you have soldier, some form of soldier logs, but. Since we're on this tangent, we'll go full-blown into this tangent. There yeah. were 300 Spartans, but there were also other Greeks that were there. There were like thousands of other Greeks that were there that right. were under the command of the Spartans. 
and uh, I forgot, I think they were called, not hoplites, I forgot what they were called, but yeah, there was more than just the Spartans there. It is definitely romanticized, and again, that book kind of explains all of that. It's it's really interesting, that, that whole ordeal. Anyway, back to back to the 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 fourth century a couple of months after the battle uh theodosius fell ill and went to milan with the eastern forces fearing the worst because he's been sick before and he's almost died before so he really thought he was on his deathbed he sent for his son honorius and officially like officially stamp everything he is the emperor of the west at the age of 10. Could you imagine at the age of 10 being the emperor of an entire <laughs> empire? You know, I think that did cross into my fantasies as a 10 year old. I think now as an adult, I really, really rethink that whole premise. But I think 10 year old me would have found it pretty, pretty rad. You know, there's a certain novelty of being able to have more or less uh, total control or a very high degree of it. Respect. Yeah, or, Man, can or, you imagine a 10-year-old commanding like actual respect? I think, you know, that's probably what we all really wanted. <laughs> yeah, I could see many 10-year-olds wanting that, including this when I was 10 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be able to have an empire at your disposal. So in addition... In addition uh, to to this, he raised a loyal general named Stilicho, the master of arms of the West. Master of, sorry, master of armies of the West. It is pretty much this guy controls the empire. He's the main counselor behind uh, Honorus. Stilicho is going to become very important in this situation. He and Alaric are going to become rivals, and their story is going to intertwine all over the place. Good, good. So now that we have introduced you, Stilicho and Rufinus, it's time we bring up another source. He is my favorite of this time. His name is Claudius Claudianus, who is mm. also known as Claudian. <laughs> I'll just call him anus. <laughs> <laughs> I will continue to call him Claudian. He's a riot. <laughs> if he was a D&D bard, his words can inflict tons of damage. At the time of, of at this time, he's writing his books. Uh, he's the official court poet of Rome. And uh, he is basically Stilicho's, uh, chief propagandist shall we say he he really really does not like rufinus over there in the east he wrote two entire books on how awful rufinus is that is literally titled book against rufinus volumes one and two not enough room in one book to keep to write that down huh (laughs) no no apparently rufinus was so horrible that he had to write all of that down well at least it's to the point so anyway back to the story some of these these uh sources though they are characters of their own and i feel like we got to bring them in because they're they're funny he is one of them theodosius never ends up recovering and in the january of 395 he dies leaving his two sons installed on the throne with their trusted advisors 
His death severs the East and West forever. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that from my classes. It's coming back slowly, maybe. Yeah, yeah. They did not know it at the time because several times, like the East and West would flip flop, but then they'd come together. But nope, never comes back. Now, essentially, to set up the game of rescue, if Emperor Arcadius under control of Rufinus over in the east and over in the west, you have Honoris and Stilico, and then we have our boy Alaric, who is in the Danube region, who's kind of in the middle of the empire, kind of being a nuisance to both the east and the west. So, the, obviously, as we figured, probably can figure under Claudia. Claudian, that Rufinus and Stilico hate each other, which is fantastic news for Alaric. They're not going to be focused on him. They're going to be focused on those two. They're, you know, each other's feuds. Well, much like the uh, the battle, the winds of change coming for Alaric. Yes. He, once Alaric is proclaimed king, he riles up his barbarian tribes to unite and devastate the Romans. The night before they set out, they pro probably the night he was king, they probably had a huge feast. And I could just imagine warriors banging on their shields, you know, boasting how they're going to stick it to the man, in this case, the Romans. Uh, in those fields, like um, in Game of Thrones, obviously you didn't watch this, but for listeners, it's like King of the North, King of the North. I could just see that kind of scene and him really riling up them. So Alaric and his best friends begin spreading their trademark that we're going to see of aggressive devastation throughout Moesia and Thrace on his march to Constantinople to take his grievances to the emperor at the emperor's doorstep. Which I got to say, it's a very effective way to get someone's attention. It's time. It's time for barbarian rage. Good old D&D &D reference. Now, in this time, Constantinople has no army. So the, the eastern army that Theodosius commanded is over in Milan. So all he can do, all Rufinus can do is lock down that city, which is pretty fine, considering Constantinople has the best defenses in all of Europe. It would take, we could do a little side episode on the walls of Constantinople. They are insane. I highly suggest people look them up if they're interested. To get you a little glimpse of how good these walls are, it took the invention of black powder cannons for the city to finally be conquered in 1453. So over a thousand years from this time. That is pretty nifty. Yeah. Like, some walls just are that hard to break i guess i haven't really studied much of the uh medieval history to know whether or not that the how easy it is to break walls per se but most of my I, historical knowledge is without walls because again gunpowder really really made a lot of walls defunct yeah yeah this one will it was like they had they had like an outer wall they had like siege works where they're like you know like um uh like spikes stuck in the ground they uh, had they had um another wall like they had a series of walls and they had archers on those walls picking through you as you're you know trying to climb these walls and then 
Um, in addition to climate trying the archers, when you finally get to the walls, they pour boiling oil. They have those oil slots to pour down onto you. Mm, classic. So it, 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 it's pretty impressive that, that one. So anyway, when he got to Constantinople, he's just hung around for a bit. He set up siege. He, he went, go, he went raiding through the, he went raiding and pillaging through the countryside as you do. And then after a while, he just kind of picked up his uh, siege toys and went, well, this is boring, and then left. Just figured out that it's not worth his time to siege. It, it must have. Some historians have speculated this was like Alaric introducing himself to Arcadius and Rufinus. Like a little knock on your neighbor's door, letting him know you moved in the neighborhood. Except in this case, you have an AK-47 strapped to your shoulder. Boy, I can't wait to do that if I move somewhere new. <laughs> <laughs> so after he picked up and left he and his followers resumed their pillaging on their way through greece leaving a burning of villages and enslaving the population that wasn't butchered in these you know pillages in their wake just absolute destruction i can't it's hard to really describe the absolute magnitude that he is just laying waste to, the, to Greece. Eventually, his band of warlords pillaged their way to Athens. According to Zosimus, upon arriving in Athens, Alaric sent heralds of proposals of peace. He said that he did this because Alaric was in awe of the city and he didn't want to ravish it, which probably then Athens was probably amazing and gorgeous, especially to a barbarian who really liked like Roman things. As we come to later find out, like Alaric wanted to be a Roman in the worst way. And so this had to be just cool to him. Yeah, it's got to be. And again, that's that. This is another. I think Athens is another place that's very much romanticized as far as like our Western historical view of it. A lot of the time, yes, it is. Yeah. So, give or take with a grain of salt, but it would be really cool. I haven't seen Athens today or any of their historical buildings or you know whatever is left, if anything. Right. I'm sure they've got something around. They have some things, yeah. Like, but, you know, I never never really thought about it too much. But it would be really cool, I'm, sh I'm sure. Yeah, I would love to see it back in its heyday, too, because I really love that architecture that they have. Um, I'm sure there's videos online you could go look up to see what it is. So he, after Olds were taken on both sides, basically saying, we won't attack you if you don't attack us, Alaric entered Athens with a small number of troops. I really wonder what small is in this case. It's uh, at least two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't, I can't I, I imagine it was enough for Athens to, to, to very, to not bother him. Zosimus continues, he was there entertained with all possible civility and treated with great hospi hospitality, after which he received some presents and then departed, leaving the city and all of Attica, that province, uninjured. So pretty much Athens is the only Greek land that is not completely destroyed by the storm that is Alaric. Sometimes you just got to be cool. 
You know, that's, that's what I'm taking away from this. There's the number one rule I was taught of kayaking and in life is to look good. Because if you're <laughs> looking good, you're probably doing something right. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So after his little stop in Athens, he resumed his path of annihilation through the rest of Greece. He, his devastation spread to other famous Greek cities such as Argos, Corinth, and what we were talking about earlier, Sparta. The inhabitants were either killed or enslaved, and their treasures were divided. Were their treasures were divided amongst the Goths? Someone wasn't hugged enough as a child, I feel like. This is like a party that got way too out of hand. He is just causing chaos at this point. Just knows how to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, he's really Goths partying. He's going to have fun. <laughs> so Stilicho, who is in charge of the Eastern Army, which right now belongs to Rufinus and Arcadius, decided that Alaric was a problem. So in September of 395, without permission, this is key, from the Eastern Court prior to his arrival, he landed in Thessaly, which is the under the Eastern Empire's control. The Roman people finally think, great, finally someone is going to do something about this barbarian menace. As I said before, problem is, is this is under Constantinople's jurisdiction and not Stilicho's. And for some reason, that's a big issue in terms of this little power play that is between, um, that is between Rufinus and Stilicho. So he's not supposed to be there, and he's actually taken a huge gamble to try and quickly defeat Alaric, who's a skilled warlord. Because if he stays there too long, he it's like almost he is invading the east with the western troops, with their own troops, essentially. Mm -hmm. So Alaric and Stilicho's sides exchange blows, little skirmishes um, that occur between the lines. This is what Stilicho's like, one of his tactics. He's really good at this. He just kind of like sends skirmishes to like point the his like foe, especially when it's barbarians, like where he wants them to go. It's basically his way of cornering them. And at some point he actually succeeds and manages to corner the barbarian king. So Alaric could be finished right here. Um, some sources say that Alaric was already in a fort and that was heavily fortified when Stilicho arrived. So maybe Alaric just saw what was coming and then basically went, well, we'll just go hide. We'll take our, you know, we'll go take all the grain we just stole and all the goods and we'll just chill out in the fort and wait out uh, Stilicho's men. <laughs> a lot less fun than just chilling, but. <laughs> yeah. The, the next turn of events are not very clear because two contemporary sources have completely different accounts. Zosimus claims that Stilicho lost control of his troops and then they proceeded to raid everything and that was already not marked by Alaric's Goths. My problem with that is what could be left? Like <laughs> the Goths are very good at destroying things. Nothing of value anyways. Yeah, probably, probably he, they had to unscrew the things that weren't bolted down because I'm pretty sure the Barbians just took things that weren't bolted down like later Vikings did and then just move on. So maybe they actually unscrewed things from the walls. Yeah. 
So, but also at this time, I can see this. Stilicho's men are not just Italian Romans. Many of these legions are also comprised of Barian of barbarian ethnicity. Some of these are Goths. Some of these are Vandals. Some of these are Franks. Um, it's just a, it's not really clear. It's not like clear Romans versus barbarians. It's like more of like a weird mixed civil war going on at this point. Claudian, the drama queen in, of the century is clearly paid by Stilicho. And he writes that the evil Rufinus demanded that Stilicho return the legions of the Eastern Empire immediately to Constantinople, even though that they are already engaged with Alaric. He goes for the full-blown drama, dropping all pretense when he recounts how the Roman legions were so distraught at not being able to continue their engagement against their loathsome enemy. They were heartbroken at being parted from their leader, Stilicho, who they burned with fury and desired with vengeance against Rufinus for this foul and treacherous deed. Who do you believe? Zosimus or the drama queen Claudian? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Definitely. I, I can't imagine the drama queen being the truthful one. <laughs> no, no, I cannot either. It, it, it's also possible that Stilco realized, like, this is not wise to face the barbarians in open battle. They're going to kick our butts. This is what they know. This is their bread and butter. And that it's better to put pressure on them and, like, let them know, like, knock it off. And then, and then you know, try and add them to your forces. So, like, put pressure on them and then get them to say, all right, we'll sue for peace. And then you know, will join your forces. Yeah, how'd but, that work out for them? <laughs> well, what happened for sure is the barbarians escaped and the eastern troops were returned to Constantinople. So with the Goths subdued in Stilicho's eyes, he returned to deal with this problem of Rufinus's existence. This cannot be. He wanted Rufinus dead in the worst way. So quite like the puppet master is, years he started began pulling the strings of Honorus and sent some auxiliary legions to his brother Arcadius to, quote, defend the miserable nations under his dominion. Basically saying, like, look, your troops suck. We'll send better ones for you. <laughs> well, Stilicho used these troops to um, assassinate Rufinus right in front of the emperor. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, I, I mean, he, he did defend them, I guess, kind of the under his dominion, but uh, I guess within, in Silico's eyes, I don't know. That had to be horrific, though, for um, Arcadius to watch, like, his, you know, protector and, like, chief advisor just be killed right in front of him. Yeah, not a, not a great day. No, no. So a eunuch named Eutropius and Arcadius's wife Eudoxia filled the power vacuum that was left by Rufinus's public assassination. Uh, so Stilicho wasn't even able to like take advantage of that. So I, I'm not sure what his point of that whole thing was, but Eutropius was more concerned with consolidating his power at the Eastern court. So he left Alaric to his own devices. 
What do you think Alaric is doing during this time? He does he, what he does best. He rages. Yeah, yeah, he and his band are back to looting and destroying any settlement that just happens to catch their eye in Greece and the Danube region, while the Romans are left fighting their own internal problems. My question with this is, where is all of this loot going? It's got to be slowing them down. Are they selling it right now? Because, I mean, they've got to be trading. Otherwise, that, that's got to that's gotta be a pain to drag all of that. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how much loot they would actually, I suppose, take, you know. It's probably, I always imagined whenever they say, like, raid or things like that, like, sure, like, some people would take some valuables but a lot of it i always felt was just more along the lines of like foodstuffs and things you can use but uh i do always appreciate the concept of the of the family guy star wars couch and that oh yes that yes, we're just going to yeah, just this perfectly good couch just you know <laughs> so, so clean it up a little bit get the stains out and man it'll look great yeah. it'll look great in the living room so, yeah, you just kind of wash those blood stains out of it. That's right. So as I said, I can't imagine too many things being carried, but I ha I can't say I've fathomed too much of what it's like to be a uh, nomadic barbarian at this point. Yeah, yeah. I gotta. I mean, I'm sure they grabbed pretty much anything that was shiny and valuable. That's pretty much what they grabbed. And then, like you said, grain. That is going to be a consistent thing throughout Alaric's reign, is he wants grain and gold and to be left alone. If he doesn't get that, he's just going to party it up, as, as we would say. It's the simple things in life, really. Well, eventually, Stilicho landed again in Greece to go deal with Alaric. Eutropius and by extension Arcadius were not thrilled that Stilicho is back in their land. What is this guy doing? He should not be here. He is invading us. So Stilicho, though, claimed that he was in their land to fight against Alaric. He, he wasn't there to, like, you know, attack them or anything. In this case, he actually was there to fight Alaric. Like, <laughs> Alaric is causing a lot of problems, and Stilicho thought he needed to be dealt with. So after fight, some fighting between the two forces, you know, little skirmishes here and there, uh, you know, not, not nothing really serious. Stilicho, for some reason, retreats back to Italy. Coward. <laughs> Run away! Run away! <laughs> some speculate that he was doing this as like a training exercise to harden his men or something like that in the West. And then all of a sudden, some or... Something in the West like needed his attention. Remember, the, the Empire is not just over here in the East is having problems. In the West, they're having issues as well. So maybe so that something was more pressing than Alaric just being, well, a barbarian at this time was in his, that needed his attention. Impossible. He he's the character of the story. There is nothing more important than, than Alaric. <laughs> in our story yes i think it was more likely that Alaric was just much tougher than he thought and that he couldn't defeat him and then he's like look i'm not gonna waste my time here and then he hike it back to italy right this is a good guy centric story <laughs> after stilico left 
um, Eutropius used this to his advantage and influenced Arcadius to declare Stilicho as public enemy of the East. So, in Rome, when someone's declared a public enemy, it's not quite like it is here. It is the duty of all Romans to kill them on sight. Friendly. <laughs> Stop. It, it, you violated the law. Yeah, it's not like, oh, you you have the right to kill on site, you know, to protect yourself. No, no, no. It is your duty to kill them. Even a peasant farmer, this is their duty, which is <laughs> quite an insane thing. Hey, if it works. <laughs> yeah. While this is going on, uh, I, I visioned the unescapable courier from Skyrim showed up and gave... Um, him the letter from Emperor Arcadius. Hey, uh, really, your eyes only. Eutropius. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, the, um, they gave this to, to Alaric, and he's probably, what the heck? Uh, it, it says in the letter that they wanted an alliance with Alaric, and they actually offered to name him Magister Militum per Illyricum and make all of his troops officially Roman troops. This is what he wanted before all of this mess started. Sometimes dreams do come true. <laughs> Sometimes they do. I can't imagine that the citizens <laughs> that were living in this area were thrilled with this. Well, those ones that were not killed and enslaved already. Yeah, that's pretty fair. So, well... Alaric kind of uses this to his advantage. Alaric kept sending messages to both sides saying, look, I'll stop pillaging once you give me what I want. Until then, I'm just going to go destroying your, your towns and villages. It just, it just goes to show that when your dreams are dashed, you need to go start a riot until you get what you want. I'm not sure if that's the takeaway that, that our viewers should get from this episode today. We're not. No, no, this is not quest for power approved behavior. <laughs> you can have your own quest for power in your free time, but leave us out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the great news is, is now that since, you know, the Goths, they no longer need to go plunder in order to live. They are now being supplied as part of the Roman army, as part of this little truce going on. And Alaric's title is now Alaric, first of his name, King of the Goths, Master of Destruction, and Roman General. He's got some pretty serious power that he has now. Oh, he's like the Master of Destruction. <laughs> <laughs> I added that in myself. I thought it was fun. Oh, okay. Kind of like the breaker of chains in Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. But, uh, but it, it seemed to fit. Um, unfortunately, after a series of unfortunate events, the uh, eunuch Eutropius that we really don't have time to go into uh, was overthrown, ending the alliance between Alaric and the East. And... Arcadius's wife Eudoxia and maybe Arcadius even himself was left in charge to control the Eastern Empire. There's no real evidence to show whether this was her puppeting over him or whether it was both of them like co-ruling. Hmm. 
So Alaric got the, the feeling that he wasn't wanted anymore by the, the new people in charge in Constantinople, since really this faction rose to power by criticizing the barbarians, especially Gothic generals, meaning Alaric. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. Yeah, so in 401, no longer feeling welcome, he picks up his toys and he invades Italy's to become Stilco's problem, actually in Stilco's territory this time. He has zero pretenses of what, where he's going, and he heads straight to Milan, where the Emperor Honorus is. Hey, you know, sometimes you have to make a statement. Sometimes you do. Stilico is currently over in Gaul, so basically France, dealing with other issues at the moment and unable to do anything about Alaric's invasion. So Honoris gets the hell out of there. He flees to multiple cities, evading capture, basically waiting until his savior comes. <laughs> waiting for the big bad wolf to, to stop trying to blow down the houses. So Stilico gets word of this, drops everything in Gaul, and hastily grabs a few troops, and he bolts back to Italy. He meets Alaric, and the finally the battle, the real battle, is going to occur that has been brewing. However, when Stilico's troops get there, it's Easter Sunday, and both sides are devoutly Christian, and Easter at this time is the holiest of days in the Christian faith. Alaric's men do not expect an attack. Nobody would incur the wrath of God by defiling his holy day on their side. Stilico, however, seemed to not care about the whole damnation thing and ordered a surprise attack against the unsuspecting Goths. Hey, you know, sometimes you have to live for today. And <laughs> I think I think Stilico embraced that aspect. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a vibe. Yeah, he, he really went for the instant gratification. Obviously, the Goths are defeated. This really wasn't a battle. It was a cheap shot. However, Alaric is not killed or even captured, and he manages to once again get away with a decent number of forces. He always gets away. He always does. He's a slippery little guy. Claudian, Stilicho's head cheerleader and our favorite source, uh, describes the deeds of this battle into a poem, which includes the event of Alaric's wife being captured among Goths. We, however, never hear of this again, hear of her again after this battle. What do you think became of her? Do you think she was just captured and held as a prisoner until I don't know what happened? Or totally. Or was she killed? Like, uh, what do you? Uh, uh, it's so weird that we never hear of her again. Either that, or is you know maybe she just wasn't captured, or she was just killed, and they just wanted to write it into poem just because it felt, I don't know, poetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe it was them. You know, maybe artistic creativity is. You know, a little narration. Who who knows? That, that is just such a weird thing that, like, we never hear of her before. We never hear of her again. Yeah. But who would who would be so weird to just narrate on history? Spending yeah. a free time talking about history 
I know really weird individuals that just talk about history. God, they're such nerds. Nerds. So the Goths retreat out of Italy and they go head into Illyricum. Do you know where that is? I do not. So it's in the Balkans, which is basically if you had strong enough binoculars and you were standing on a Western Italian beach and you look West, that's like where the Balkans are at. That's kind of where he's at during this time. All right. So with the big bad wolf gong, Honorus comes out of hiding and moves himself and the Western court entirely to Ravenna. It's like a very fortified city. It's really hard to breach. It's got like natural barriers, a very swampy area around it. That would be pretty hard for invaders. Sounds pretty nice. I think you should have chosen the beach as a uh, as as the base of operations. Yeah, then he then he can swim in the in the meantime <laughs> when you're not being invaded. <laughs> yeah, swim, have a have a few drinks. I think I think that's how he should have done it. Enjoy yeah. enjoy the time you have left. Yeah, yeah. Have a mai tai or a mojito sitting on the beach there. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, back to the <laughs> the story here. Just just to show how quickly allegiances change during this time, Stilico, after some time has passed, he re- realizes that he actually needs Alaric and his forces if he has any shot in hell in pushing back the barbarian invasions that are happening over in modern-day France. In order to illustrate how big of a problem Stilico is dealing with right now over there, is like, imagine millions of barbarians are of all different tribes and cultures are just pouring into France. For us, it would be like if all of Canada was like this mix of cultures would just invade the United States, like just the entire population of Canada and then maybe then some would come into here is like what would happen. So like us up in the up in the northern part of the United States would definitely feel those effects right away. Yeah. You all, you would all never uh, see you'd never look at ho- hockey sticks ever the same again. <laughs> no, you would not. Instead of football being the dominant uh sport here, it would be now hockey. That's right. Now we can brainstorm on our next episode about the the, the implications of a Canadian invasion. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Stilico offered Alaric to be a Roman general in the lands that he already is familiar with, which is Dacia, Macedonia, basically over by Greek, Greece area. This is what Alaric wants most. He's pillaging the lands because his... Now, he's not pillaging these lands because his only goal in life is to cause havoc and destruction. He wants a high position in the Roman army, and he wants land and food for his people. However, it's not Stilico's land to give because it's technically owned by the East, which Stilico does not have control over. And so for these reasons, Stilico declares war on Constantinople. So this is actual now civil war. He's basically trying to prove to Alaric, like, look, I will fight for you if you will fight for me. (laughs) We've seen how well that works. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, he's he's really trying to go out of his way here. Stilicho's in a really hard, a rock, between a rock and a hard place. I would not want his position. Alec agrees to this proposal, and he, like, positions his forces in the Danube region and, like, just sits and waits for the signal from Stilicho to join him on his march to Constantinople. So it seems like the plan here is Stilicho is planning that Arcadius will get scared and soup for peace ASAP. And then the West can demand, the West and Alaric can demand favorable terms. So like, they'll like give Alaric the Danube and we'll leave you alone. Great plan, right? Obviously we've got Uh, the dream team. Yes, (laughs) yes, we do. However, there's a suicide. Oh my god! I almost said there's a suicide squad, a dream team like the Suicide Squad. It's the opposite <laughs> of a dream team. Yeah. It's, it's two sides of the same coin: the dream team and the Suicide Squad. Yeah. So any, anyway, however, there is a usurper called Constantine the Third from Britain who went and decided to declare himself emperor. And then he crossed into France and began making the name for himself by actually succeeding against these barbarians, the northern barbarians. He was pushing them back and doing what Stilicho could not. So Stilicho had to go, was forced to go deal with that. And he ended up leaving Alaric and his men to just sit there waiting for a year. And remind you, their food is like going away during this time. So Alaric is becoming increasingly annoyed as each month passes. It takes a lot of money and a lot of food to feed an entire army and just people and keep them battle ready, especially for an entire year. Like at any moment, they should be ready to go. So his men, as you can imagine, were getting restless and he needed to do something to keep them under control. He's been able to keep them under control at this point, but they're starting to stir and show a little bit of, you know, um, anger and frustration. Rage, if you will. (laughs) Yes. Alaric moved his forces just behind the Alps and sent a little note to Silico demanding 4,000 pounds of gold to keep his men happy enough to not invade Italy, which is pretty vulnerable right now. So according to one source, that is the equivalent of 160,000 pounds of sterling in 1889, which through an online calculator from the University of Wyoming is about $25.5 million in today's money. So we basically want, in order for me not to attack you, I need $25 million to do nothing. Hey, if you can demand it. You just got to get more money for doing less. That's the American dream. I mean, it reminds me of like the protection rackets of the mafia is really oh, what yeah, it that's reminds true. me of. It is, it is very much like a uh, extortion. It literally is extortion. I'm sorry. There's, yeah. there's not really another word for it. <laughs> no, no, there isn't. So Stilicho has to go to the Senate and the Senate already is not a fan of him. And he has to ask for that much money, which is going to come out of their pockets. So in a long speech during this time when he's begging them for money, he's going on how Alaric is so great and he's a faithful ally. 
And then under the same speech, he explains to them how dangerous it would be to refuse him this money. (laughs) That's politics for you. That had that's a da- that's a that's a really weird narrative to, to to spin. It'd have to be an incredible salesman. Well, if you're, uh, I mean, he's not wrong. It would be dangerous to not. <laughs> no, and yeah, yeah, he it's not. He's showing his track record is showing when he doesn't get what he wants. He has no problem of just activating barbarian rage and just destroying everything in his path. So he explained to the Senate that the Gothic king had offered his services against the usurper Constantine, who was actually doing well against the barbarian groups in the Gaul. The Senate was happy with Constantine doing well because, you know, that means that they weren't coming towards them. As you can imagine, the Senate who were very proud Romans and the Romans for centuries have demanded tribute from other barbarian tribes. They themselves should never have to pay tribute to a filthy barbarian. Well, they're going to learn today. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes you got to put your pride aside Some of the senators even puffed up their chests like the good politicians they are on how they would let their estates be burned over their dead bodies before capitulating in such a disgraceful act. Despite all of the big talk, like typical politicians, they relented and agreed to pay the barbarian king. According to Zosimus, one senator remarked, This is not a peace, but a bond of servitude. The man then ran into a church and then claimed sanctuary. (laughs) Yeah, I can't. I can't blame him. (laughs) He's basically like, oop, I shouldn't have said that. that." (laughs) It's time time to go. (laughs) So this severely weakened Stilicho's position in the court for the perception of the dishonor he brought on to Rome. And then after a series of more unfortunate events for Stilicho, including Arcadius over in the East dying at the age of 31 due to unknown reasons, um, led Stilicho to being arrested and executed. Wow. So I haven't found anything on Arcadius's death, like being fishy or suspect i mean it could very well he just died of something that everyone dies of at that time i mean people died randomly due to disease all the time at that time or he could have been poisoned but who knows dysentery it's always actually (laughs) makes me think of um like especially like victorian times how like everyone died of tuberculosis yeah yeah same deal well tuberculosis has been around forever there is a fair chance he could have died of it could have died of the plague. The plague was always around. And it's not necessarily the bubonic plague, but there was tons of plagues that erupted all over Rome during this time. Oh, yeah, for sure. It just, yeah, it makes me think of plagues that were more common or fashionable at the time. Yeah. A man named Olympias, which, like the Olympians, funny name, risen to take Stilicho's place by Honoris' side. He decided to sever all communications with the Goths and instituted a very strict anti-Goth policy. 
can't have those kids wearing black and makeup. I'm I'm not surprised if you would. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say I didn't want to get political, but uh, I gotta say it. I wouldn't be surprised if he would say we're gonna build the wall and make the cost pay for it. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna build. We're gonna build Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> yep. What happened next is so just mind-numbingly dumb that if it was written into a fiction book, no one would believe that the villain was this stupid. It would create so many memes of how dumb this villain is. Instead of preparing for the ine inevitable invasion, because, you know, Alaric, you know, has no problem destroying crap, Olympias dismisses all of his Gothic commanders and soldiers into his forces, basically institutes a statewide racism cleanse. Sounds smart. <laughs> yeah, I should note that there are many Gothic commanders and forces in the Roman army oh, at this point. Shoot. Yeah, I mean, well, especially at the very least, even if it's not that many, you're still just disrupting an awful lot of personnel and chain of command for a political agenda. Yeah, it, it, it is just mind-boggling. And then at the same stroke, like... I, I assume this like happens all at a time. He passes a law that no Aryans or heathens were allowed to enter the Imperial troops. So he even bars more people from his army. So not only does he just dismiss all people, he bars others from joining the army. I just, that's I, what I want in my war. Fewer <laughs> soldiers. That's that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I i just i don't understand like this in a in fiction you'd be like what is the this this is unbelievable to round out all of the dumb decisions that i imagine is happening in one night he orders he decides to execute order 66 on all of the goths to the to in addition to anyone who had an allegiance to stilico as a state-sponsored purge wow why not just fiddle while Rome burns while you're at it? <laughs> so here's a quote from Zosimus describing the situation. The soldiers who were in the city on hearing on the death of Stilicho fell upon all the women and children in the city who belonged to the barbarians, having as a preconcerted signal destroyed every individual of them. They plundered them of all they possessed. When this was known to the relation of those who were murdered, they assembled together from all quarters, being highly incensed against the Romans for so imper imperious of a breach of the promises that they had made in the presence of the gods. They all resolved to join with Alaric to assist him in war against Rome. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. yeah. Play stupid oh, games. Win stupid prizes. That's right. <laughs> One thing to note, that might be a, a thing we have in this podcast, play stupid games and stupid prizes. There are <laughs> yeah. so many dumb decisions in history. That's just like, you. why would you do that? Like going into Russia in the middle of winter, just not intelligent. One thing to note during this time is that Serena, Stilko's widow, who is Theodosius's daughter and adoptive mother to Honorus was exempt from this massacre. So these series of decisions has to be, I just, 
they're so dumb during this time. It's not like they had the forces to spare and they just sent all of the vengeful warriors, hardened men into Alaric's open and inviting arms. Well, at least uh, at least our, our main man gets something out of this. Yes, yes. He we're we're here for Alaric. We're not yes. here for, for Rome. <laughs> Rome is the villain in this in this. That's narrative. right. Alaric's the good guy. <laughs> <laughs> Many Gothic slaves also escape from their masters and they also go fight to Alaric and join his coalition. His forces almost overnight are bolstered by 30,000 ticked off hardened warriors. Again, just intelligence. On top of all of this, it's not like Alaric has a history or anything of just tearing up the countryside when his demands are not being met. He was just given all of these troops. You weakened your army and Alaric is just, you know, has a history. It's not like he's going to go, oh, I'll just leave you alone now because you, you know, killed all the, you tried to kill all the goths. Yeah, it's, it, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I can't imagine that the that this could have gone over well. Honestly, I'm surprised. Well, I should say that I'm not technically surprised that there were a bunch of Goths in the army already because it was more of policy, but it is kind of surprising that that they can leverage such power to have the Goths in the army in the first place. So Yeah, yeah. The, the armies really were a big mixture of all different ethnicities. Again, it was like a weird, what are we fighting for reason, basically, so the upper powers can have, you know, play their little political games. The, I'm sure the common soldiers had a lot in common, besides like the proud Italian Romans who probably would side-eye their fellow uh, Gothic troops just because that's the nature of that day yeah it's got to be hard to foster that kind of camaraderie but it, it it always struck me as that most of it was a numbers game as far as a lot of wars so losing uh what was it thirty thousand men yeah yeah that's i, I don't think that you can make up for those numbers not no. unless a plague happens yeah that would probably make make up for it or some like event that happened to Alaric, but I, again, I, that it's just insane. So Alaric joins up with his brother-in-law Atulf in 408, who you might want to keep an eye on. He's going to come back in our story and invades Italy once more. Alaric triumphantly marches his Rome across Italy, burning and slaving and looting his way all the way back to Ravenna, the current royal residence. He took a look at the fortified, you know, city and went, eh, I don't feel like wasting my men over this. So instead, he takes his, uh, I, I would have to say, sight and points it directly to Rome. Now, Rome is not the city it once was. It has still all the splendor, but it not so much the significance. It hasn't really, I mean, emperors haven't really been in Rome in a long time. 
but it's still the symbol of the empire because it's like all of that glorious history that Rome has all the way up to this point is very much tied to that city. But really what's going on is the city is the city is just run by the Senate and the Senate is no longer really that much in power. They just kind of control Rome and apparently they had messed a little bit with Stilicho because they probably were like the bank and had to fund things, but they didn't really do much for the last couple hundred years in the dealings with the rest of the empire. Wow. Well, that's that's kind of crazy. It, it definitely always, I, I, I've kind of known it, but I always kind of forget that, yeah, that it was the capital city at one point. After all, it's called the Roman Empire, not, you know, not the uh, uh, Ravenian Empire, right? Yeah, or Constantinople Empire. Yeah. So it, it really is weird because when I always thought of Rome, I think of Rome, the capital. And then for some reason, it's not even like an overnight thing. It's just like through series of decisions and entire history of Rome that you should go listen to on Totalis, on Roman Emperor's Totalis Rankium, where they describe all of what happens. But essentially just eventually it just becomes obsolete because the Roman emperors are dealing with all the, you know, the issues happening on the borders of Rome. So instead of insulting the walls of Rome, he decided to seize the harbor town um, called Portus that supplied the city. Useless fact of the day, this is where we get the word port from, this little city. It's a very important city. <laughs> yes, it is. He was not interested in sacrificing any of his soldiers. He's really, he was content with starving the millions of inhabitants and in intercepting any of supplies that was going into the city. Basically, Alaric does this again. I'll just set up siege. I don't need to waste my men. This is, you know, he's a very smart commander and actually cares about his troops. According to Gibbon, the first emotions of the nobles and of the people of Rome were those of surprise and indignation that a vile barbarian should dare insult the capital of the world. Soon their indignation was humbled by misfortune. The government in Ravenna did nothing to help the citizens of Rome. So what's universal? about humanity when things are going wrong? Well, usually, well, gosh, a, a constant? A constant, yeah. Ooh. I would say, I say my, my always first thought is like looting and stuff like that, but that's what the barbarians are doing. <laughs> well, <clears throat> think it about, think about it. They always find a scapegoat. Oh, happened yeah. in World War II, happened so many times, happens to today. And they put all of their blame and hatred into that scapegoat. The citizens of Rome are no different. Their scapegoat and their scapegoat in this situation becomes Serena, the widow of Stilicho. Despite being the adoptive mother to the emperor, 
and the daughter of the great Theodosius, the mob accused her of maintaining a secret and criminal correspondence with the Gothic invader. And actuated or overawed by the same popular frenzy, the Senate, without requiring any evidence of her guilt, pronounced the death of her sentence, and she was unceremoniously strangled right in the Senate. That's... uh. It's quite the leap of judgment as far as scapegoats go. Yeah, what a brilliant move. Like, the barbarians are still camped outside your door. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't solve the problem. (laughs) To everyone's amazement in Rome, Alaric just didn't go, all right, then, and pack up the things and leave. His His response was probably... And I care how? <laughs> Got her. <laughs> All right, let's go. <laughs> so despite Serena being executed, the citizens began to starve. Each day, the scarcity of food increased. Thousands were dying of starvation, and their bodies were beginning to take up vast spaces within the walls of Rome. Little backstory, Rome did not bury their dead inside. I think they had a fear or something. I can't remember quite well what it was, but they generally had the graveyards outside of Rome. That checks out. I I kind of agree with that. Well, also if you have walls, you can only grave there's you can only have more and more graves over time, right? Yeah. It's not like the number of dead goes down. <laughs> uh so <laughs> Graveyards only grow bigger, and you can't just expect to take up real estate inside walls, right? So I totally understand the sentiment. Plus, it's good to keep the dead things outside the wall, even if you love the dead things. <laughs> yeah, and remember, Romans at this time, and like anyone at this time, very superstitious about the dead and things like that. So very understandable. But now they're in your city. So the yeah. is, <laughs> the citizens' hopes are kept up by letters leaking through Alaric's blockade that the emperor is building an army to come and save them. And uh, I, I really doubt, I doubt it. The, this administration has shown how pathetically weak it is. Eventually, the Senate realized there was no one coming and sent in heralds to Alaric's camp to negotiate terms of surrender. I would not want to be one of those guys. (laughs) That does not sound like a proposition that I would sign up for. Yeah, nice to be a, you know, a Roman ambassador negotiating your surrender. It's got to be, it's got to be a good feeling. Especially marching right into the evil barbarian camp. So despite their desperation, the ambassadors spoke lawfully like proud Romans and said, if you do not give us honorable terms, the citizens are prepared to rise up as one and die rather than yield. Fine, do it. (laughs) Yeah, his quote, his, his reply was simply, quote, the thicker the hay, the easier it is mowed. And then he erupted into laughter at the mere thought of the townspeople attempting to fight. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> that is these, that these is... soft city folk. 
yeah and that's actually in like the the record is like his laughing at them which i could just only imagine would just wreak horror into these poor bastards who <laughs> it's nice to know that uh it's nice to know they record the little things you know yeah i agree he then declared that he would not relinquish the siege on any condition except he received all the gold and silver in the city all the household goods and the barbarian slaves. The humbled ambassadors said, if you take all of this, what will you leave for the citizens? His reply, your lives. There you go. That's some movie magic right there. That, that is some, that's a mic drop. That's pretty, that's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's bad when it's true. Yeah. He, he, not unfortunately, he eventually agreed to lift the siege under some rather odd specific terms. He said that he would let them live in exchange for 5,000 pounds of gold, 30,000 pounds of silver, 4,000 robes of silk, 3,000 pieces of fine scarlet cloth, and 3,000 pounds of pepper. Gordon Ramsay would be proud. <laughs> uh, that is uh that's just really interesting i think it may, i i think upon reading like of other sources like the goths were like used to getting used to roman cuisine which had a lot of pepper in it and i think that's kind of why they had that weird little oh. demand I, I just assumed that they were just common trade goods that you could easily convert you know, that they were the most liquid thing you could get about that time, right? Like gold, silver, and then the rest is just seems like things that you, you know, you could try and more or less convert. Yeah, yeah. So this little maneuver that he did was really about getting Olympias's and Honoris's attention, saying, you have to deal with me. I have your precious city by the throat. Like, you have, you have to talk to me. And then he settled into Tuscany with uh, with all of his friends uh, and his spoils from Rome for winter, and his forces have increased by 40,000 more slaves. So he's really adding up the count. Yeah, it's a time. Fight me. 1v1 <laughs> me in rust, bro. <laughs> Alaric decides that he is going to march to Ravenna and attempt negotiations once more with the Western court. His terms were very simple. Hostage exchange, some land, and a position in the Roman forces, and an alliance. He's trying to work with them at this point. Like, he offered to help them go sort out their mess in Gaul. Like, he's like, look, I'll help you out. Just give me, you know, land, food, and a place in the Roman army. He just said, it's the simple things, you know. That's all he wants. That's all he wants. Uh, not, not too much. As you can imagine, the imperial government told him to go pound sand. They clearly demonstrate to Alaric that they want nothing to do with him. They're like children plugging their ears and going, la, 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 I can't hear you. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's really great diplomacy there. <laughs> that's that's the that's the vision I kept getting while researching this stuff. 
Alaric and his men once back marched to Rome and lay siege again, cutting off food and supplies. I would not want to be in Rome at this time. This would be awful. Wouldn't want to be anywhere around that <laughs> godforsaken place at this point. It's, that is true. I would not. I'm very Athens. glad. Athens is a fine, apparently. Yeah, go to yeah Athens. that's true. Yeah, go sit in Athens for a, for a bit. So the creepy, stocky carrier from Skyrim was once again dispatched to send a letter to Ravenna. And this, in this letter probably went along the lines from Alaric saying, seriously, I have your precious city in my hands. You have to deal with me. I'm not going to go away. And signed, Alaric, King of the Goths, and bold master of destruction. <laughs> Honorus finally set Olympias aside. He got intelligent and realized he was not in a very precarious situation. The Goths are right outside of Rome and they're ready to just cause chaos. He cannot fight them because then that would leave him vulnerable to Constantine in the third, who we talked about earlier, in the east to come in and invade and take his spot. So there's a really good chance, and there's a really good chance he could lose to the Goths as if he decided to face them in open battle. Gotta think, he's probably missing Stilico right now. Probably shouldn't have executed him. He, he may have known what he was doing. Uh, Stilico wasn't doing too much. Yeah. He, he, he got one lucky shot. That is, that is true. That is true. So he sent an advisor in his name. Uh, his name was Jovinus to go meet him and negotiate with Alaric. And then <laughs> while he was doing this, he tried to sneak 6,000 troops into Rome. <laughs> and Alaric saw this <laughs> a mile away being like, I can see you. What are you doing? <laughs> Back. Yeah. According to sources, only a hundred of these men returned back to Ravenna. I wonder if this was like a situation of dead men tell no tales. Like, I'll let a couple of you live so you can explain to them what we do if we don't get what we want. Oh, I think the message would have been heard loud and clear when they said, "Where's all right? Where's our back from negotiating? Where are the where where are my men at? What men? <laughs> huh? So, as you can imagine, Alaric is fully enraged at this point. He demanded a yearly tribute of large sums of gold and grain, rank of general in the Roman army, and a big slice of land right next to Italy. Not asking for much, is he? Well, it's quite a bit, honestly, at this point. I don't even know why he wants to be part of these Roman roman guys you know i i yeah honoris he has to agree to this like alaric has his empire in vice grips and it he could be a huge asset to the romans if he was on their side he has an insane amount of power and is very good at fighting jovinus agreed with this proposal since they didn't really have a choice and they he's like look to he went to like Honorus, look, you have an angry horde of barbarians with a track record just staring at you. And he sent a little note to Ravenna saying, seriously, you need to accept this. We are not in a good position for these people to go off. Honorus was willing to accept all of the terms except the rank of general in the Roman army. 
It's a sore spot. Uh, yeah. How <laughs> dare. And apparently in the letter back, it was something not very nice. Like, how dare you expect that? Well, how dare you expect to live? <laughs> I was going to say, what are you doing? I know we're not breaking ground, but this is why racism is just so, so dumb. Like, him being a goth is the only reason that he's, like, pretty much says no. You just want to go back to Honoris and, like, slap him up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but we don't we, we don't need any uh, butterfly effect things going on here. So I'll leave, I'll leave history lie. That is true. <laughs> Alaric flies into a rage as, pr- as yeah. predictable. Rage! And marches his troops back to Rome for round number two. He sets up shop. He seizes all food that was being sent to Rome after the previous siege was being lifted. So here we go again. Not wanting to go through a second famine, the people of Rome surrender right away. The threat of many pointy objects and fire, the Senate declared that Honorus was deposed and appointed this emperor by the name of Attalus, who was like the prefect of the city, um, which is, I want to guess like, almost like governor of the city is I think is the best way to say it. And uh, he is now the new emperor of the West and he really is Alaric's puppet. So (laughs) (laughs) Attalus made Alaric, his desired position, master of soldiers once again, and his brother-in-law, Atolf, received a little bit lesser of a post. He finally got to to live the dream. (laughs) Yes, he finally got what he wants. Just goes to show, if you don't get what you want, you take it by absolute force. Again, not quest for power-approved behavior, but... That's right. (laughs) This seemed to appease Alaric for like a short little bit of time, but then he got bored and he deposed his new emperor. And uh, despite deposing him, he didn't kill this Attalus and his family. Instead, Attalus asked to stay with them and he was like treated with honor. What a weird situation there. Yeah, it is kind of bizarre, but you know, as long as it doesn't cause, cause any problems, right? I mean, I guess, yeah. Normally, like, if you ever were considered emperor or anything like that, you like, you were just, just dead immediately. You either are on the throne or you're killed for being, a, you know, even thinking about it. Well, maybe he just was that non-threatening. Probably. Alaric proceeded to position his troops again and directly threaten Ravenna, Ravenna this time and negotiate it again. The negotiations were short. While Alaric's men were camped within three miles of Ravenna, a group of 4,000 Gothic troops under a man named Sara sallied out of Ravenna and surprise attacked Alaric's forces. Saras is a Goth serving under the Romans, really just despite Alaric. He is the hereditary enemy of House Balti. There's not... This information isn't so much for this episode, but it'll affect in, in it'll impact our next episode. But basically, he is like the Starks and the Lannisters in Game of Thrones references again. I know you really need to watch this show. Yeah, we'll see. Well, we might get around to it someday. 
So this little surprise attack managed to accomplish one thing. Infuriate Alaric past the point of no return. Gloves are off. I've had it with these people. He heads back to Rome for a third time, and he's probably burning anything in his path. I just imagine a trail of fire and smoke in his wake because of just, he's got to be livid by this time. There's nothing holding him back. He's got to have a serious, like his, his blood pressure through the roof. Yeah, as you can imagine, like, so he gets over to the city and darkness falls. So they, the Romans know he's camped outside, but, you know, they don't know what he's going to do. And at the stroke of midnight on August 23rd, 410, the salaring gate was silently opened by an insider to allow the Goths to enter the city unbothered in silence. All of a sudden, a gothic horn tears through the night and all hell breaks loose. The city's inhabitants wake up to a real-life nightmare. For the first time since the sack of Rome by the Gauls when it was just a fledgling kingdom, way during the time when Rome was not even an empire, it was still a republic, and a tiny one at that was the last time Rome had been sacked. The city, which conquered the entire Mediterranean, instilled the fear of many nations, was given over to the rage of Alaric's men to do as they wished. So, despite the savagery of the sack, it was not nearly as bad. I can't believe I'm saying that, but like it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Alaric was a very devout, as we learned, is a very devout Christian, and so were his men. And they were told to spare all churches and property and people, even if there were soldiers inside those churches. You can't touch them. You can't do nothing. Despite that, anything else is, you know, fair game. So if you weren't in those, like, safe zones, you're SOL. Boy, I bet them churches were packed. Oh, yes. I just, that had to be a crazy, just absolute insane time. Unfortunately, we don't have like many, like, I don't think we have any records of like what actually happened during this sack, but it it can't have been good. Sacks are never good for cities. (laughs) Guess I better start hanging crosses above my, above my house, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, it's church now. So please it, don't come down my house. Remember, like, and even for like uh, a lot of these soldiers were ex-slaves. It's not far to think of what they would do to their masters if they were without, you know, if they were not in the oh, safe yeah. zones. So basically, as people later described. Um, that they, uh, there were many that were tortured into revealing their belongings and then slain for their, you know, troubles. Thousands of people were sold into slavery. Some later sources write that the streets were piled with bodies of not just the men, but the women and the children too. They're animals, and I slaughtered them like animals. I hate, oh, sorry. That's wrong, right. Wrong. 
Wrong they were thing, coarse right. and rough and they got everywhere. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I was in a galaxy far, far away. Back. Sorry. I, I need to break up the tension. It was, <laughs> it was a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. So this, as you can imagine, sent shockwaves across the empire. Like the, the horror that this event had to cause just panic throughout Europe as like news of this devastation spread like wildfire. It must have been like the end is near. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, it's, you know, if anything, it's very symbolic, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's an event we still talk about today. I remember in middle school talking about the sack of Rome. So yeah, it's an important event. This is not a small event. Yeah, it's well, yeah, even if it's, I mean, it is a big event, but even, you know, like you said, it's, it's, it's reign is, or it's, it's importance is largely symbolic. It, it It's just a really like, I guess like a devastating morale kind of Yes. Blow. Yeah, it is a big morale blow. So the barbarians also got quite a trophy, which exasperated the pandemonium. They captured a young 20-something Roman princess Galla Placidia, who was the who is the daughter of Theodosius and Emperor Honorus's favorite sister. Mm. So <clears throat> Despite all that, like, she was treated with all due respect and she was treated well by her captors. They were not terrible to her. She was treated with honor. It's very interesting that, like, despite this great prize that they captured, they could have done horrific things. They did not. They treated her with kind, well, as much kindness as a captor could give. Yeah. Yep. Here's your... Here's here's your cell. Here's your here's your meal. I don't even think she had a cell. I think she was like treated like um other hostages were treated at this time like when, you know, I think that was more like that like you're part of the court type deal. Yeah. And you're not you just you don't get the freedom to move. Yeah. yeah. So now that he finally has conquered the Eternal City, it's like the climax of his story. The rest of this is falling action. It's pretty much what his entire reign built up to. So now that he conquered the Eternal City, he has a couple of choices. He can go take up residence in Rome. He can go after the Ravenna court. He can go to Africa and just start raiding there because that's like the untouched breadbasket of the empire. Or he can continue west and just continue ravaging all his way throughout the rest of the empire that he didn't touch. What option do you think he chose? If it involves raging, he's going to do the most rage. So, ooh, it's always options, the last two options, because why would he sit still? This is not a man who sits still. Yeah, yeah. So what he actually does do is he's like, I am done with the Romans. He is so fed up at this point, and he wants to become the king of Italy. To do this, he has to go to Africa because that is where the bread, that is where all the food is coming from. So he has to secure those trade routes for in order for his Italian kingdom to survive. It's where you bless the rains. 
Yes. So <laughs> he got all the way his way down to southern Italy, got his ready way to go to Africa, and then devastation struck. The his ships were destroyed trying to cross on a horrific storm and he they get swept up into Italy. And then shortly after he was shipwrecked, he succumbs to disease and dies, ending the devastating and violent reign of Alaric the first. The first of his name. Yes, the first of his name. How anticlimactic. I know, very anticlimactic. I was really hoping he'd like go out in like a hail of um burnt, like gunfire, so to speak. But no, he just got taken out by one of the main killers of mankind, disease. Yeah, you can't outrun disease. No, no. Alrighty, so are you ready to rate our Alaric the first? Yeah, let's give it a crack. Alrighty. The real Game of Thrones. How well did he play the real Game of Thrones? Hmm. Let's see. Well, if you're talking and let's let let's re let's recap this for my benefit and also for everyone else's. Let's let's this is the first time we're really diving into this. Let's talk this through. So the real Game of Thrones to me is like how well did he play the situation he was in? How well was he plotting? How well did he take advantage? Like picture the the world is a is a you know a board game or a chessboard. How well did he play and make his position known? Was he a really good? Was he like a mastermind and pulled the right strings, or was he the puppet that was getting the strings pulled on him? Is basically what I would think so much of this section. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Alrighty. So, how well did he play the real Game of Thrones? I think, let's see, on a scale of 1 to 10, I think I'd have to give him, hmm, probably a 9. We'll, we'll give him, we'll give him the, the great, the great send-off that he deserves. Uh, wow, a 9. That's, well, that's uh, pretty high. Well, you know, even if it's a weakened Rome, it's still Rome. And when you're able to demand a... When you were when you're able to demand tribute from an empire, that really says an awful lot about your overall ability to kind of play the game, as it were. Uh, but just your ability to set yourself up in such a way that he asks or that he's able to at least get some of his demands met by a quote unquote superior force, I suppose. Yeah, kind of loose, yeah. loose in that regard, but he played both sides well. I think that politics was a really big factor between East and West. I think he was really good at playing East and West off each other, and he was very good at, you know, turning on whatever his opponent needed to be turned on for his own benefit and really maximize that. I can't, I will probably, I will also give him a nine because I can't give him a 10 because. He didn't have absolute power. 
I would say in this situation, but he definitely controlled a lot of power. I mean, he had a lot of political savviness. He had the freedom to completely destroy Greece unchecked for years. So I'd have to agree. Yeah. So his, his only real downside was that he had to work with Rome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So nine and nine is 18. That's right. Royal mischief. All right. On a scale of one to 10, what do you think about his uh, Royal mischief category? Uh, I think that mischief doesn't sound like his character. I think it's like a five or a four. Mischievous, not really. Just effective. It, every From the sounds of it, from our absolutely not biased sources, we it sounds like that the stuff he did was more just rageful and often just advantageous, not so much like doesn't 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 strike me as a mischievous individual well i mean he destroyed everything in his path he sacked rome he kidnapped a princess and the only thing that i would that goes against him on like the royal games and stuff like that is the fact that he kept wanting peace for his people so i have to agree with you on that so how much are you gonna give him i think i'll give him a five uh i think i'm gonna have to give him a six. I think he deserves a little bit more. Okay. We'll give him that one. <laughs> so for a total of 11. That is correct. Religious passion. How many points would you give him on his religious passion? Uh, I think this is another five. Not to just keep walking the middle road here. Uh, it's great that, you know, described as a a uh, devout Christian, so that's kind of a religious passion in its own right. But if if uh, not attacking people in churches is is all it takes to have religious passion, I think that's a that's a low yeah. that's a low bar. He you know he yeah. wasn't he wasn't thumping he wasn't thumping any Bibles. It's not like he built a church. It's not like he built any like Christian thing. He just said, "Don't attack these things." So. I'm actually going to give him like a a two. Ooh. One for letting the the um churches like not be harmed during the sack of Rome and then another one for getting surprised attacked on Easter Sunday like That's not even thinking. So I'll give him two points. Yeah. Okay. Whopping 7 alignment so this is going to be a one to five points okay so what do you think about him as a as a dnd rpg alignment oh let's see we'll start with the good evil spectrum and we can piece it from there so i think that he has to be somewhere in the neutral or good i think neutral i would have to say neutral he caused a lot of pain on a lot of people yeah um, innocent bystanders because of the powers that be did not give him what he wants but at the same time he did that for like his 
own people so that way they could survive in this horrific time well so i'd also, have to go with neutral on that well if you're you know saying if it's good for the right reasons that can be argued as a chaotic good if that's your i mean chaotic for sure i don't think there's a lot of question no yeah i think it's chaotic neutral i'd give them three points for chaotic neutral yeah i'm thinking about this one chaotic good or chaotic neutral i can see i can make an argument for either because just asking for the simple things and doing right by your people. But yeah, he's probably neutral. We'll, we'll give him the even score there. Okay, so six out of 10. Stability. How long do you think he reigned? Oh man, it sounds like, well, it sounds like he had a really full life <laughs> for having died of disease in a shipwreck has had a very full time, but shoot, I don't know. He probably died in his, sounds like a man who died in his forties. I think you hit it dead on the head. He uh, reigned from 395 to 410. Remember he took reign at 25 years old and then he reigned for 15 years. So, so around that ballpark. Yeah. Yeah, Well, he had to be old enough to he had to be old enough to be able to do all of those things but not so old that he would just be willing to just sail across the sea and then die in a shipwreck yeah unfortunately i think i have to give him zero points for stability yeah. his people were nomads there there was no stability they just destroyed everything in their path they caused instability I got to go zero on this one. Yeah, uh, I'll give him, let's see, out of five, I'll give him a one. Well, I think just because at the very least, it may not have been stability, it may not have been stability for the Romans, but, <laughs> you know, at least he was able to get the the food, you know, the food and all of that stuff for his uh his people so i think there's something to be said about that some amount of stability not much okay so a one between the two of us dynasty so what do you think for dynasty i think he sets a pretty strong precedent uh his lack of stability as we discussed is less promising but I think it's also difficult because we haven't really discussed or heard much in the way of him setting up anything at all for any future rule. Yeah. So, so part of like some, so like dynasty, he is the first King of like the Visigoths. He sets up the Balti dynasty, which is going to carry on for quite some time and could, and, and, have a big effect of the Visigothic rule in Europe. He also has a great legend surrounding his bar- his burial. So I don't think this is true, but it's a great legend, and I think this contributes to his dynasty. His people mourn for him with the utmost affection. They knew that no successor could carry out his grand plans. They wanted to make sure that their beloved king would not be violated by the hands of their enemies. They forced Roman prisoners to divert 
a river and then they buried their king with his vast treasure trove of spoils of war and his weapons in the riverbed. The riverbed was then diverted back, sealing his grave, and the prisoners were slain so no Roman will ever know the burial of his body and his treasure. So, not not real, but it's a great story. That's a great legend. <laughs> kind of horrific at the end there, but it's a pretty great legend. Yeah. I think that, well, I wonder if people, I'm sure people have tried searching. That sounds, yeah. it sounds like something archaeologists would have a field day on. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. To drain all the rivers. <laughs> yeah. So I, I doubt it's real, but it's a great story. But his, his fortune had to go somewhere because I think a lot of it would have been buried with them. That was very common with those um, Gothic tribes back then. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, plus also with all the demands he got, I mean, all that, all that money's got to go somewhere. Yeah. So I think I'd have to give him a seven because he's the first king of the Visigoths. He sets up our entire podcast. So he's got to mean something. He has this great legend. He is known as the man who sacked Rome. That is even taught in schools it's not a mere footnote the bad things are is we don't know what happened with his wife and kids and his bloodline appeared to end with him he was never able to get his foothold in italy sounds like less of a dynasty to me but i guess i'll give him a six well give him a bit Alrighty. 13 that's right okay so I'm guessing after all this, you probably want to know the total score. The total score. I am riveted. What is the total score? Riveted. Uh, yes. So we have a. Actually, this is this is actually kind of fun. We both, in the end, assigned the same score of 28 for a total of 56. So one way or oh, another, wow. we think equally highly of him. <laughs> pretty good well 56 we'll have to see in future episodes but i think that's pretty good for, i think he's off to a strong start for a strong start all righty so we've got his final score do we think he is should be crowned as high king reduced to a lesser lord or burnt at the stake oh he's a high king i mean high king easily yes he definitely is high king 10 out of 10. Yeah, I agree. Alrighty, we'll have to place him in the Great Hall of the Monarchs. So that's it for Alaric. What stood out to you? What a crazy story. Just an, a lot of stuff happened in one lifespan. That, like, this podcast went a very long time. Not all of them will go this long. Yeah, really exemplifies the the aspect of that a life long lived is not necessarily a life well lived because i yeah. think that him well i mean granted if he died in like his 40s that's still a pretty decent lifespan especially considering how long ago it was but um i think that you know really that it sounds like that he lived far more than the average person today 
for better or worse. <laughs> but yeah, if anyone is able to sack Rome, I think that earns you a pretty notable spot. Yeah, his his story is absolutely fascinating for me, especially all of the backstory that was going on during this time. That he's just right smack dab in the center of it, and at times the catalyst of this crazy yeah. event that's going to ha- that's happening. Well, that's kind of the wild part, right? Is that well, for two kind of two facts is that history is never in a vacuum, so you're very much a product of your time in your own way but also the fact that he is such a warping force that he manipulates the fabric of history around him is really uh, a powerful statement for his character yes i would have to agree well that's it for alaric next week we will judge king atolf <laughs> good luck saying that one <laughs> I know. Will he be able to fill the void left behind his brother-in-law? Tune out to next week to find out. Thank you so very much for joining us on our quest for power. If you liked our show, please leave a five-star review on wherever you get your podcasts. It doesn't really matter what you say. Just tell us who your favorite monarch is. If you have any questions or comments, please message us on Facebook. Until next time. The king is dead. Long live the king!